Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt. We're here with Spencer Spettnagel. Uh, we're at Durant uh, Winery in Dayton. Uh, it's July 12, 2022. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Spencer, to get us started, first question is why wine? Um, I ended up, uh, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, so not exactly the heart of wine country. Um, I ended up doing my undergrad in Atlanta, Georgia. And during my undergrad, I was waiting tables and fine dining. Um, and so I got into the end product of wine. Uh, as I got more and more into helping cultivate the wine list at my restaurants, um, I met more winemakers, more grape growers, as I was learning about the industry. Um, I knew I was never gonna work in a cubicle. I was flitting and floating between numerous d degrees during my <clears throat> more than four years uh, of undergrad. And I'd always wanted to move out west. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more it made sense that I'd be working with Mother Nature, which has always been important to me. Um, everywhere you make wine, it's a pretty gorgeous part of the world. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a good excuse to move out west. And so at some point I just decided to pack up my car and after I wrapped up my degree, I drove to Sonoma, California and um, got a harvest position at Ravenswood in Sonoma. I didn't have a backup plan, so I just made sure that they were going to give me a full-time position at the end of the harvest and um, I guess almost 20 years later, so so far so good it still worked out but um yeah i think the the biggest reason was to work outside to not be tied to a cubicle um and i love the fact that it's a living breathing product you know i get something in return more so than just my paycheck um that, yeah, my blood, sweat, and tears are going to every bottle, and and I love the fact that even people I have never met thousands of miles away, that something that I poured myself into can what, make their anniversary better, can make their Tuesday night pizza better, um, and that's uh, that's way better than, than the paycheck at the end of the day for me. Um, so yeah, it's been, I decided that and, it, and it's been full throttle ever since. I love going into work every day still. Really what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, we spend a lot of time there, right? <laughs> so may as well enjoy it. So tell me about, you mentioned how your kind of wine education came, as you mentioned, from the kind of the mm -hmm. fine dining and we've, it's kind of a common theme among people who, who we've, we've interviewed. So tell me about learning about wine, uh, what intrigued you kind of in the early days of your wine education and what was the kind of the, what were the kind of steps along the way towards understanding and learning it better? Um, what intrigued me? The, I guess just how varied it was. You know, the same cultivar 
in the same region can be expressed in a million different ways. You know, and I love the fact that there's a million variables in the vineyard and another million variables in the winery. And so even in, when you get the same grapes from the same property, two winemakers can make very different wines. Um, and, and I just loved, uh, always had, um, it wasn't, wine wasn't prevalent at my dinner table growing up. My mom, you know, didn't drink at dinner. Um, but when she threw a party, it was always something that was going to separate, you know, make a difference at, at the shindig. Um, and so as I was learning about it in fine dining, um, I just loved how you could heighten any dish, you know, you can complement or contrast the dish depending on the wine and what you want to go for. Um, and that it's, yeah, I love that it was ever changing. Um, like the first bottle of wine that really sold me into the industry was a early 90s Joseph Phelps insignia, but I had never seen a wine that change that much over, you know, three or four hours after being opened and that had such length and depth that you were still figuring out what the nuances were, you know, seven to ten minutes after you took the first sip. It kept changing in the mouth even without it being there. Um, and I think that that really piqued my interest. Um, into what wine could be and what it could mean. And as I've gotten more into it, I love this balance of art and science, um, that there are some technical aspects, but you know, some of the best winemakers don't even have any of the technical background to it. Um, and they just do it by feel and are true artists in their sense. Um, yeah. Think a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about becoming more involved in the wine list. So tell me, mm -hmm. tell me about that. Tell me about what you needed to know to be involved in that, and what you kind of took away from building a wine list. Yeah, I think um, you know, in in Atlanta in the late '90s, early 2000s, when I was doing this, um, I, we were uh, the U.S. in general was still learning about wine. And um, definitely in the South, we were still learning about wine. And so uh, it, it was kind of an organic um, thing to start taking over list as um, the chefs needed more help. And I took a lot of direction from my chefs early on um, to what they wanted on their list and what their style of food was and what, how they, what they thought the best wines were going to be to help. Um, show the, the cuisine off. Um, and so it was just a trial by fire of the best thing about wine is the only way to learn is to keep drinking it, you know, and, and keep reading and keep educating yourself. Because like I said, there's a million different variables and even the same grapes in the regions can vary differently from winery to winery. Um, and so it was, just a shotgun approach early on and that there was uh, way more information than I could take in. So I just I slowly picked away at it mm -hmm. over time and I always came in. I never set up a list from the beginning. I always had uh, a, a list to start from and then just got the opportunity to, to go to different tastings and try more wines and 
things that piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. um, my chefs were willing to let me bring it on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was, it, and it still is, you know, 20 years later, I still think I have a, a long way to go to, to soak it all in. Um, and it, there's so much to know and so much history to it, and it changes every single year. Um, so I'm still in the learning process. <laughs> Did you find anything surprising about what sold wine, how people chose wine? Um, not too much. I think it goes along with society and that there, there were people that would just maybe without even thinking order the most expensive bottle on the list, which is always fun for your tip. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, back then it was, we were still educating the public. And so I think it was, um, there were, you know, some people that wanted to stick to what they knew and that was easy enough. We could always accommodate that. Um, it was always the most fun to get um, customers that wanted, that just gave us the reins to their meal. You know, we're like, we have no allergies. We have, we, there's nothing we don't eat. Um, take us through a three course meal and pair each course with a different wine. And, and they wanted to learn and, and that was, the most fun for me because we could kind of show off everything that we work so hard to to build up at each restaurant. Um, but I think it nothing overly surprising. It was um, yeah. Some people wanted to learn. Some people wanted to stick to what they know. And there's a few people that definitely just saw it as a status thing to without even thinking they'd order a white fish and order the biggest cab that they could, you know, and you're just like, okay. <laughs> so when you, when you decided to, you, you decided to kind of pack it up and, and head west, what was your impression of wine production at that point? What did you know about wine production and what were you kind of expecting to find? Um, I knew it was hard work, um, you know, and I, I, I don't think I was, overly surprised when I got into harvest. Um, I had, luckily I had secured the position for a in harvest intern at Ravenswood before I drove out. And so we had conversations, but I knew that, you know, it was gonna be six to seven days a week, 12 hour shifts and Ravenswood back then, they were running two 12 hour shifts, you know, running 24 hours a day to process their 11,000 tons of Zinfandel, essentially. Um, and so I knew that it was gonna be good, hard work, but I've always loved that. I never thought I, I didn't excel in the classroom uh, at any point, uh, <laughs> did enough to make it by and, and to learn, um, but I never minded sweat equity and, um, so I figured that if I just worked hard enough and um, was my own, yeah, mostly bur bubbly personality, uh, <laughs> that I get along with all walks of life and I'm playful, um, that I am an eternal optimist even when things are hardest. So I love that part of the industry that even if, you know, after a few hundred hour work weeks in a row, 
Um, if you have a smile on your face, you know, one smile from you goes a long way through the rest of the crew. You can tell when somebody is dragging and if I go be a little playful and make a joke, make light of things, bring their energy up a little bit, um, that that would work out. And it, it's good hard work, but I love that aspect of the business. I still love punch downs and you know and and the hard work of it um, yeah I don't I wasn't overly surprised I had always known agriculture is, is really hard um, and and that the seller would be you know just as equally of, of good hard work um, so the first you know harvest time was just a whirlwind for my first harvest. I had no, I, everything I touched was a brand new experience <laughs> for me, um, every aspect of it. So it was just um, trying to keep my head above water, make sure I learned as much as I could through the process. Um, but, and it's, yeah, it's been a blast ever since. <laughs> what were the what were the kind of standout moments in that first harvest of things that you either uh, either took away as uh, exciting parts of it or like learning experiences or what what made you want to do more? Um, let's see, everything. I mean, the one of the most funs was the crew and the team mentality. I've always had team sports you know throughout my life and um, that you're just in the thick of things the the crew I worked with and the friends I met from that very first harvest um, I'm still close with most of them so many years later even you know they were from Australia and have are out of the wine industry and have moved all over the country and and still consider them very close friends and so there's a camaraderie um, when you're in the thick of things for that long that uh, it's hard to match you know unless I mean at restaurants it may take years to kind of get the core crew that you um, have been through everything with but when it's you're so inundated with everything you know 24 hours a day seven days a week um, that there's just a very quick and permanent bond um, and so that was a blast and you know everything was brand new to me I had never seen the inside of a winery at that point and so all the machinery all the steps I had read about them but it's hard to understand what that means when you just read it on a book you know mm -hmm. besides seeing a 25 ton ferment in a stainless tank and doing pump overs for an hour on that each day um, and I just everything about it was more than I expected and um, swept me off my feet immediately you know just the smells of the fermenting grapes going from grape to wine over a you know two-week period um, and all the steps that it takes and daily maintenance that it took to to get the grapes into wine um, I, it all I knew and immediately I mean even sanitizing 
hundreds of picking bins before harvest started. Um, that was fun, you know, brand new to me and made the most of it while you're in the baking sun on the pavement in Sonoma in August. Um, but all of it was just so much fun. I knew immediately that I was hooked. Um, yeah, and so then over the next three years, I stayed at Ravenswood because I wanted to learn everything I could. And I think the best, the best way for me to learn was to see the process from start to finish, you know, a few times over. And um, so I did that with, with Ravenswood, loved the winemakers I was learning from. And like I said, knew immediately I was gonna stick with the industry, but after a few years, knew I wanted to be in a winemaker at some point, wanted to stay in production. Um, and so, since I hadn't touched science since high school, essentially, I stayed as far away from it as I could during undergrad. Uh, I knew I needed to go back and get some of that organic chemistry uh, basis. And um, so I ended up choosing a program down in New Zealand, partly to see a new growing region, partly to move abroad, and definitely not to take organic chemistry in French or German or <laughs> Italian or anything else. Although I got to New Zealand and I was like, are you sure this is English? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. so so, tell us about that, about, about the kind of continuing education at that point and also about the, the kind of differences between working in New Zealand and, and working in Sonoma. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I knew I wanted to go live abroad anyway, and I loved backpacking, and I had always wanted to see New Zealand. So as I was looking at programs, didn't really want to go live at Davis or Fresno. Um, New Zealand kept popping up in my head, and so I was like, oh, well, I'll get to work with the exact opposite types of grapes. You know, all I worked with at Ravenswood was Zinfandel, mainly, and then Cab and Syrah, little bit of Chardonnay, mm -hmm. and that's about it. Um, so going down New Zealand, I knew it'd be focused on cool climate, you know, and I'd see a whole bunch of Sauvignon Blanc and a whole bunch of Pinot and Gris and everything else. Um, and like I said, to also live abroad. Uh, and. At, Lin, uh, at Lincoln University, not Linfield, at Lincoln University <laughs> in New Zealand, um, they had a graduate diploma, which was like a, a year-long program of all the senior-level viticulture and enology um, classes. And I, you know, knew I was going to stay in production, but wanted some background, some more background to the grape-growing side, and so everything fit about that program, that I could do it, knock it out in a year. Um, we had our own test field where you got to work with grapes, and so it'd be hands-on learning, which is definitely the best way I learn. Um, and it would be a, the quickest program I could do. Mm -hmm. I mean, to go to, to do a master's at Davis, I would have had to take three semesters of prereqs just to start the masters. And I didn't want to go back to school for three more years. I wanted to get back in the industry. Um, 
And so going down to New Zealand fit the bill in every way. Um, got to see a gorgeous country, got to live there for two years, work on either end of my schooling, um, and kind of do my best method of school, which is uh, quick. And <laughs> I got to learn it all, but it was fast and furious. Um, and really then being down there and working with Pino really piqued my interest in cool climate growing. And then um, since I came back from New Zealand, I've really stuck, um, ended up in Santa Cruz. And so I was making more Pinot um, down there. In Santa Cruz, you get to work with some east side of Santa Cruz mountains, um, which means Cabin Sraw on that side, but in the fog belt on the west slope, um, it's all Pinot and, and cooler climate winemaking. So um, yeah, it seemed like a natural transition to, to stay in cool climate when I got back. And um, Santa Cruz is cooler climate than Sonoma, but you know, not quite, but definitely a warmer Pinot growing region than New Zealand. When you were when your interest was peaked in the idea of cool climate, was it the production or was it the, the finished product? The finished product. I think the the more elegant, um, the you know the wasn't the nuances of the really pretty and light, elegant wines. Um, and really down there, I really started getting into more white swallows down there. I mean, it was maybe the first time um, since restaurant industry that I was, that I drank more whites again. And just seeing what they could do with Cooler Climate Chardonnay and, and their Sauvignon Blanc and um, their Grise and everything else. Um, really showed me what white wines could be as opposed to um, big, rich Chardonnay from Sonoma Valley. Um, and the Pinots, yeah, the elegance and nuances and how much depth there is to a, a Pinot um, without all the, without just really big, rich tannins mm -hmm. to, to kick you in the teeth. Um, that was a lot of fun and how much they showed their sense of place, you know, that um, started seeing a lot more variation I, as I was learning more too and, and being able to taste a little better, seeing the nuances of site to site and uh, Pinot shows that spectacularly well. So yeah, now at this point you've you've been in Sonoma for a few years. You've been in New Zealand for a couple of years. You're back in Santa Cruz. So working different places, different climates, different styles, different winemakers. At what point did you start to kind of develop your own sort of style or, or philosophy of winemaking? Of uh, this is how I would do it if I was in control. Um, yeah, I think I'm still learning that. <laughs> um, Sometime after that, after I had the education, after a few more years in Santa Cruz, um, I think I was starting to get a feel um, for what I liked more and what I thought worked, you know, on, from different vineyards and, you know, learning was just starting to learn more about barrels at that point and seeing what barrels worked with what cultivar. 
Um, and so I think naturally some point in Santa Cruz, um, I started having some of my own ideas, if you will, of, <laughs> of what I liked, you know, and um, I, I liked the physical nature of punch downs and I was seeing that between pump overs and being really delicate and it has its place, but um, there's a, a bit of communion for me with doing the physical nature of a punch down and and even with Pino I, I like the tannin build that you get um, from punch downs and and pijage if it's more whole cluster um, so yeah I think early or later in Santa Cruz and then next step was Oregon and, and definitely early into Oregon I was the honing in my ideas. Before we get you to Oregon, tell me about that experience in Santa Cruz. Now that you've gone back, you've gotten the education, what was, what was the role you were playing in, in wineries at that point? And what was, the, what was, what was your kind of end goal? Um, in goal, you know, stay in production, but have more stay in production, you know, get first step assistant winemaker, which is how I ended up in Santa Cruz was for an assistant winemaker position. Um, and so seeing more of the day to day rather than just getting handed the work orders and you know having this done getting a seat at the table for more of the blending and more of the barrel tasting um, and really fine-tuning the piecing together of the wines and and crafting them from grape to wine um, was always where I wanted to go, you know, stay in the production side and I always wanted to be a winemaker. And so that first step was assistant winemaker, which um, that fit the bill in Santa Cruz at uh, Barchetto. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but yeah, continuing that education and, and seeing just, you know, when you're assistant winemaker, you get to taste every day, you get to work with the winemaker to craft, put, piece together the best wines. What are the barrels that work best together from this vineyard or for this particular wine? Um, and so seeing, being more involved on that side um, of it, um, was the next goal after New Zealand was to get more on writing the work orders and and I was a small enough place that I was doing the work orders also but at least I was also sitting at the table from start to finish to figure out um, what grapes we were going to get what was going to be the protocol for each vineyard and each um, style of wine and then crafting the best wines we could um, after everything had aged in barrels. So the assistant winemaker role obviously is an interesting one, as you mentioned, you kind of kind of a feet, foot in both sides of leadership and, and physical work. So tell me about, as you were in that role, um, what did you, what, what, what was new to you? What was, what was added to your plate and, and what did it, what did kind of, how did it inspire your next step? Um, what was new was, you know, working um, with your uh, programs um, to 
chart and record all the additions and everything. And then uh, the most fun part of being in uh, uh, compliance with the TTB and learning the government <laughs> side. And um, so not all of it was what you dream of <laughs> as a winemaker. You think of just the drinking wine and soaking it all in and sitting at a table and, and that's a lot of fun. But um, yeah, learning the, the compliance side and all the quarterly uh, paperwork you need for the government to stay in compliance and um, getting a deeper look into um, the, you know, balancing the budget and, and thinking about um, what it actually cost to make wine, which was, that was eye-opening for me. I had <laughs> never been involved on that side. And um, so I, I think some of that uh, behind the scenes that no one thinks of uh, when you talk about being a winemaker, um, that was my first foray into that side of the business. And um, there's a whole nother world to learn from that. Um, and so it was good to balance that with what I had always, you know, been dreaming of, which was the tasting and the crafting of the wines and blending and, and trying, you know, many different iterations of each wine to see exactly what was going to be best now, if it's early release, what's going to be best to age and, and learning how to see a wine now as unfinished, but try and project what it will mm -hmm. also be like in five, 10 years down the road. Um, that was another something that uh, was, was new to me, um, to think about not just what's in front of you, but what the, the future of that wine mm -hmm. will be. So what was your next step? Uh, well, in Santa Cruz, I met my now wife, um, and she's a, a, she was doing her PhD in microbiology, um, so the next step was now tied with her also, that she had to do a postdoc for her next step in the science world. And with her focus, there were two universities where she could get a postdoc that were near wine country. One was in Stanford, wouldn't have been a long move, um, but that PI was not hiring at the time. And the one other PI that was in her field was at University of Oregon. And so luckily she was offered a position there. Um, so that forced our hand to move to a cooler climate and move up to Oregon. Um, fortuitous uh, in that I wanted to stay in cool climate, um, that she got the one job that was looking for <laughs> a new postdoc. Um, and so we moved up here sort of sight unseen. Um, I knew that you know, that Eugene was at the southern end of the Willamette Valley. Um, not a ton of options. Most of the wineries down there, family owned and operated pretty small. Um, and luckily there's King Estate, mm -hmm. which is a little larger. Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of reached out to um, King Estate 
when I was moving up here and I was like, here's my resume, we're moving to Eugene, I'm going to stay in production. I will take whatever, <laughs> you know, I just want to stay in the production side of, of the wine industry. So I'll do whatever you need. And they didn't really need a body at the time. They definitely had um, a full winemaking team. And so they were kind enough to pull me on and just sort of create a job for me as we went. Um, and so early on, um, I don't even know what my title was, it was you know, employee number 17. Um, and so did what I could. I ended up, you know, running the cross flow and, and electrodialysis um, for a while back in the cellar. Um, but within with with winemaking industry, often there's turnover. So slowly over the years, um, there was turnover. And so went from that and then the next step I was an enologist and got back to the blending table and helping and then assistant winemaker again and then um, towards the end of my tenure down there I was um, got my first winemaking position um, and so yeah that's how we ended up in in Oregon was uh, really through my wife and um, but we loved it as soon as we got up here the the size of Oregon the pace of Oregon treated us w way better for our personalities than the Bay Area did um, and so it was a, a blast from the start we really dug Eugene um, loved working at King um, had a great crew and you know was learning a ton from each other um, about winemaking over the years. And again, just as moving up through titles over the time and tasting more and King Estate is a much larger winery than Bargetto. And so when you're tasting that many more barrels and that many more ferments, um, you just have more basis to learn more as you go. And so, um, that was my entry into Oregon wine. What year did you move up? Um, 2012. It's been a decade. <laughs> wild time flies. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. I think when you first reached out, I was like, you know, me, I, as part of the Oregon wine industry, and I was like, oh yeah, guess I've been up here a decade now. I can probably call myself a, a part of the Oregon wine industry now. Yeah, I think the statutes, I think the statutes, yeah, you're good. Phew. <laughs> so you mentioned the kind of progression for yourself at King Estate. So tell me, I'm curious, you mentioned obviously a large facility. Uh, what was your initial impression of, of the production there and how did it compare to what your past experiences? Yeah, so it, it didn't feel too big. You know, I, um, you know, starting at Ravenswood, it's a million winery, a million case winery. Um, so there's, there's a f number of places down in California that are, that are bigger, but um, definitely 
that's the by far the largest winery I've worked with um, through my career. Uh, so it didn't feel too big, um, but it was much uh, more physical. Um, you know, as at Ravenswood, um, we had mechanized a number of things. There were, like I said, there were. 25 ton red ferments that we did wholly with pump overs. Um, and so, whereas got to King and it was back to all punch downs essentially. We had a handful of pulse air, we had a handful of tanks that we would pump over, but the vast majority of the reds were cap or were punch downs for the cap management, um, a lot more whites, um, but there were still, you know, 3,000 barrels that we had to care for, um, and so it wasn't, didn't feel too big at all um, from past experiences. I knew it was that we were one of the largest wineries in Oregon, so I knew it was the upper echelon for this area. Um, but it's a well thought out facility um, that the flow goes pretty well. Um, plenty of space to get all the work done efficiently. Um, so it felt pretty natural still. Um, but because it was more physical, we did have a larger crew than I'd been used to for a while. And so um, even in the, the quiet times of the year, it was that was an interesting part of logistics was just trying to keep 20 full-time crew busy year-round, um, even when it was a quiet time and thing, we weren't racking too many barrels. Um, so, but got to keep it spick and span. <laughs> <laughs> So in your progression, you mentioned you ended up as, as one of the winemakers. Uh, tell me about that for you. What kind of uh, reflect on kind of getting to that point uh, and what was it like when you got there? Yeah, I, um, it, it sort of felt natural going through the progression, even at the same winery and stepwise through the things and learning how a winery that big dealt with everything. Um, so it was nice not to be thrown into the deep end that I got to learn all the nuances um, before I had that title. But even as assistant and enologist um, and winemaker, we had a, a great crew of winemakers, you know, so never felt that was wholly on my shoulders, which was probably a perfect entry into having the title of winemaker that I could lean on a um, group of winemakers um, and that all the decisions were by consensus to make the best wines we could for every vineyard and every wine that we crafted. Um, so I, I think it was a, a great way to have your first foray as a winemaker was um, to not be wholly responsible. Um, even once I came up here and was the sole winemaker, I have a much smaller crew. Um, I was, you know, 15 years later into being in the industry, I was scared. <laughs> As an under, and I, you know, I'd still 
take everything with a grain of salt. And um, like I said, I still feel like I'm learning. And I, I think that's a good place to be. You don't want to get too comfortable in this industry because it changes every single year um, that, you know, nothing you did the year before is guaranteed to work in this year. Um, yeah, and so I think it was having, uh, you know, a few winemakers, an assistant winemaker, um, and, a, and such a great crew down there, uh, it was a, a great way to ease into that title. Because um, they, you know, King had a long legacy of making fantastic wines, and so um, it was definitely nerve-wracking to carry the, that title. Uh, um, and to sort of be the last step in the process. Um, but like I said, um, I was co-winemaker with Brent Stone at the time, and just he is came more from a sciencing background, and I came more from the logistics and the production side of winemaking, and so felt like we had the perfect complement to each other um, to make sure that every wine we put in the bottle was um, was sound and, and truly the best wine we could craft mm -hmm. for each each vineyard and, and wine we produced. So yeah. So you mentioned uh, obviously it took, took a while to get to Oregon. T tell me about your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry. It's been phenomenal and and maybe it was partly I was ever since I've been up here I've been a little more involved as you know enologist assistant winemaker and winemaker and so I've been more involved with um, when I go to the Oregon Wine Symposium or going to the different seminars I have more of a title that promotes me to be more involved with the other <laughs> winemakers rather than just being um, another cellar worker that kind of gets lost in the fray. Um, but the industry is so welcoming and so collaborative. Um, it's been such a pleasure coming up here that when my wife finished her postdoc or grant at U of O, um, it was time for us to kind of choose our next step. And since she thought she had been in charge of the step up to Eugene, she kind of left it up to me to see where we, where we would want to end up. And as we talked, you know, Oregon had treated us so well. I loved the Oregon wine industry so much. I was like, I really want to stay up here in Oregon. Um, but being a biochemist, there's not a lot of work for her in wine country. So we had to make sure and end up in wine country that was near a big city. Um, and really the options for biotech and her industry back to the Bay Area, which we were in no rush to go back down there. Um, and the other option was Portland, essentially, mm -hmm. and that um, close enough that I could commute from town and work now in the upper end of the North Willamette Valley as opposed to the southern tip of the Willamette Valley. And so um, after being so enthralled with years and having a blast 
um, meeting everybody and learning so much from everybody in the industry. Um, I wanted to stay here and so we moved up to Portland mm -hmm. and um, she found a position and um, luckily I found a position with the Durants which has been beyond my wildest dreams. Um, a good friend of mine that I worked with at King she had worked for Paul making their wines years ago and she always said, she, if Spencer, if you move to the North Valley, you should really look up the Durants. They've been thinking about a winery, thinking about a winemaker, but they've never pulled the trigger. And so um, as we had decided on Portland, I just kind of cold emailed Paul Durant and said, hey, I've heard you've thought about building a winery. I've heard you've been thinking about bringing on a winemaker. I don't know what your timing looks like, but I'm moving up here. So love to have a conversation just to see if the timing works for y'all. Um, the Durants at the time, this was 2017. The Durants were going, knew they were finally building the winery in 18. Um, and, but we had a few conversations, Ken Durant and Paul and myself, and had a couple meetings and um, and we're getting along really well. And they said, well, this sounds great, but we're a year away from the winery. Um, so we weren't gonna bring on a winemaker just yet. I said, but don't you want the winemaker to help you procure the equipment, to like help design the layout of the winery? Um, because they are both engineers in their past life, but neither Ken nor Paul have worked in a winery. And um, so they were like, oh, yeah, that could be helpful. <laughs> and so I, uh, luckily the timing worked out that they weren't too fussed to, to bring me on a year earlier than they thought originally. And yeah, so that's how, um, yeah, being so enthralled with Oregon, super excited to got to stay in, in Oregon to continue making wine and um, blows my mind that I ended up at Durant. Um, it literally ticked all of my boxes of, you know, a boutique winery, it's a state. Um, I can, rather than at King Estate where I would have to drive to Walla Walla, to Southern Oregon, and, and everywhere in between to check on all the grapes that I can check on all the grapes here, you know, be in each block within five minutes, you know, on the quad. And so, um, love that it's a, just a small place. Um, I got to, it ticked numerous boxes that I never even considered as an option of like, I didn't think I'd ever design the layout of the winery I was going to work in. Um, but the timing here and everything, it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it blows my mind that I ended up here and it's, it's a blast. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty unique experience to get to kind of design your workspace. Yeah, design the workspace, <laughs> 
you know, have a brand new winery, but I have, when I first got here, I have 45 year old Pinot vines. Mm -hmm. um, the Durant's planted in 73, which is pretty early on into the industry. Um, yeah, to have, you know, our youngest vines when I got here were 13 years old. Um, you know, so having vines range from 13 to 45 years, um, and to do 100% estate and super focused off this single property in the Dundee Hills, um, it's such a blast. Mm -hmm. So take us through the first year on the job before the, the kind of pre-winery time. What was yeah. what were you looking for, and what was your kind of level of involvement? Yeah, so um, it was again maybe another perfect um, segue into becoming the winemaker up here. Uh, the Durants, you know, started growing in '73. In 03, um, they finally started their own brand, but they just sent extra grapes to a number of winemakers who they were friends with who was already buying some of their grapes. They sent them extra grapes. They would make the wine and bottle that portion. And so um, the Durants had a wine label and had for a few years. Um, and so in 17, I had the pleasure of not just like designing the layout of the winery, but I got to see what the winemakers did with the grapes. So in the 17 vintage, um, I got to follow the grapes to the numerous different winemakers and see what they were doing because they were each working with individual blocks and were essentially um, block designated wines. Mm -hmm. um, and so for some continuity, I got to pick their brains so that all the wines wouldn't be a complete 180 from where they were. Um, but the winemakers they worked with had been working with the grapes for years and had figured out for themselves, you know, what did work with certain blocks and what didn't. Um, and so I, got to pick all their brains and kind of not start from scratch. Um, so that was great. Um, but then as we were building out the winery, um, we had everything kind of fell into place. Um, the Durants make a lot of olive oil. We get a fair amount of the olives from California. Um, there's a winery and olive mill called McAvoy Ranch in Sonoma. And while the Durants uh, were down there uh, for their yearly spring trip to check on the olives and their contracts, um, they got to have dinner with uh, the GM of McAvoy Ranch. And they said, oh, hey, we're pulling the trigger. We're finally building a winery. We just hired a winemaker. And Sam said, oh, well, I'm selling a winery. Uh, and so McAvoy had, was doing the opposite of us. They were going from making a, you know, a small 2,000 cases on their own to con, uh, custom crushing and contracting the winemaking. And so they had a small winery essentially um, that they were ready to sell. And uh, the Durants got well, along well enough with Sam that she um, allowed us to 
to go and cherry pick all the equipment before they listed any of it. So a lot of the equipment I ended up getting came from McAvoy Ranch. Um, and I kind of got to walk in and Ken always tells the story of I walked in the winery and that my eyes just get bigger and bigger like a kid in a candy store. I was honestly walking around their little winery and like walking into the lab and being like, yep, we'll take this room. And then, you know, the first thing I see when I walk into the winery were these four concrete cubes um, for red ferments. And I, you know, never imagined that that was in our budget of building out a winery. Um, luckily, we were able to acquire those and really getting those tanks kind of, um, that changed what the uh, layout was going to be because they're such large vessels um, to, to place on the floor that once I knew that those were coming in, that kind of changed what the layout was going to look mm -hmm. like and, and how the two buildings were going to work. Um, and so luckily I acquired the McAvoy Ranch and that saved me countless hours of um, getting quotes on all the parts boards and gaskets and clamps and valves and it really gave me a big base mm -hmm. of a winery to work with and things you don't even think about until it's too late like the shovels you need for dig outs and all the cap management tools and um, so yeah starting with that um, gave me the base to kind of design the rest of the winery around it. Um, and at first we just had the front building, which is just a little 40 by 60 building that we thought we were going to do everything in. And then the second building was going to be a three to five year plan. Um, but once we got those large tanks and some of the, um, set up, it kind of pushed up the timing of this back building to, oh, we need that now. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, just kind of using my experience over the decades of large wineries and like what efficient logistics looks like at a winery um, really helped me design what I, I think for our size is a, a pretty well thought out and pretty efficient winery that the fruit comes in the front, it ferments, it moves into the back building, into the barrels, and then comes out of barrels and goes back out to the front for bottling and um, just a nice even ebb and flow. Um, so it was a great time to design the winery and, and luckily Ken and Paul are both engineers in their past lives and so uh, they could help me translate. I knew what I needed, but not exactly what that, how to say that to the engineers. And, uh, but Ken and Paul had that terminology. And so, um, it was a perfect partnership to work with them, um, to figure out exactly what I needed and what that meant. <laughs> 
So you mentioned the first, the 2017 harvest is being kind of your, you're watching everybody else and seeing. So tell me about 2018 and your your first time kind of taking the reins. Yeah, um, so 2018, um, we took a step back in production from the last few years um, in, uh, in total production, just that I think after investing so much money, it is not an inexpensive endeavor to buy all the stainless and the presses and everything else to start a winery um, that the Drias decide to sell a little more wine. Um, so I have uh, my assistant um, and myself, just the two of us, processed about 70 tons on our own. Um, so it was busy. Uh, it was a, uh, quite busy, um, but it went really smoothly. I mean, luckily, not too many curveballs were thrown in um, in the growing season. 18 was a really even spaced growing season. Um, dry from start to finish, so I didn't have to worry about too much disease pressure. Um, I could kind of pick as needed um, from top to bottom on the property, and so um, since it, there weren't too many curveballs from the outside thrown in, it was uh, pretty straightforward and just um, stepwise through those protocols I had slowly been <laughs> building up over the years and taking into consideration the nuggets I had gotten from all the previous winemakers. Um, it was, yeah, a long harvest for the two of us. I don't think either of us had a day off for 35, 40 days, um, but it went really smoothly um, for just two people. You know, we'd We'd pull in a vineyard crew or somebody from the tasting room when we were sorting fruit and everything, but um, for all intents and purposes, Vincent and myself uh, did everything from start to finish. Um, but yeah, 18s were really clean wines, ripe, um, perfect chemistry, and so it went really smoothly um, for having it be the, the first vintage, uh, the inaugural vintage of our winery for the two of us here. So you had talked about how you, you wanted to be, you wanted to see what people had done with these grapes for the years, so you weren't starting from scratch and weren't, yeah. so, I, but I'm sure you were starting to put your mark on things. So tell me about how that's, how the wines have changed uh, since you've been here and what your kind of, the characteristics you're looking for in these wines are. Um, yeah, slowly but surely I'm learning the property more. Um, I think one of my favorite parts of wine is the mouthfeel, you know, and so texture, depth, and breadth is what I love to see because what the lasting impression is is on the palate, you know. The nose, I, I feel like it changes throughout time and it has numerous nuances, but um, a winemaker really can help affect um, the, the texture of the wine. And so I think over the year I, I've, over the years I'm finding that some of my blocks I 
uh, prefer a, a little more whole cluster. Um, the vast majority of the wines were just 100% distemmed, um, but I've definitely slowly built up um, the, the whole cluster portion of most of my blocks. Um, I think that's definitely changed. Um, some of my Coopers, I've definitely brought in some different barrels um, and that changes, uh, obviously changes the, the finished product of wines. Um, I think those are the main things. You know, do some fun things. Um, we make a, a Sauvignon Blanc now. Um, which nobody had previously gotten to work with the Sauvignon Blanc off of, off of our property. Um, so that's a, a whole new wine. And um, I, I believe we are still the only Sauvignon Blanc planted in Dundee Hills. Um, and I love what it's doing off the property. Um, but playing with, you know, more skin contact on that, playing with a little more skin contact on some of the Chardonnay grapes, um, prior to pressing, again, just to pull a little tannin to give another layer of texture. Um, I probably stir my lees a little more on my whites. Um, again, just to build a little more texture on the palate. Um, I think some of those are some of the main changes. And um, my changes as I'm learning what I like in the finished product and what uh, of the nuances in the winery that I can affect that will lead to those changes I want in the end product. Um, so, I, um, yeah, I think that's some of the difference. You talked about getting to know the property. Mm -hmm. uh, what's that process like for you, and, and how long does it take to feel comfortable with mm. the various blocks you're working with? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Still working on that. Uh, I'm slowly figuring out, you know, that there are definitely some blocks that don't take um, to the whole cluster uh, quite as well as I want, and so they do better at 100% to stemmed, and so nuances of that, um, seeing what blocks. I also started making uh, some sparkling for us, which are our first sparklings. Um, and so seeing, trying to figure out um, which are the best blocks that will retain the highest acidity, can maybe carry a little more fruit to carry more acidity, but get um, enough development to make the most interesting sparklings. Um, so I'm just, some of those are what I'm really learning about the blocks, which respond best to, to being turned into sparkling, um, seeing which ones respond to um, whole cluster fermentation and, and how much whole cluster they can take. Um, what are the different nuances because we are um, essentially all block designated, clonal designated for Pinot, Chard, um, the Gris, everything is just individual blocks. And so even though some of my blocks are a stone's throw away and may even be the same clone, um, how 
are those blocks different that they um, are differentiated enough between each other to justify making bottling two separate wines? Um, and so since we dig so far into block designated, it is paramount that I learn um, the differences and, and what, um, you know, blocks can do better with whatever viticulture techniques or winemaking techniques. Um, so when will I get comfortable? Uh, hopefully never, you know, I mean, there's a, you want to get more comfortable, but not too comfortable. I, I'm, I'm learning, but um, again, since uh, I'm essentially the one person in charge of, of the decisions, um, I think it's a good place for me to be a little, um, have some anxiety <laughs> from start to finish through the process to, to keep me on edge and to make sure that I'm um, paying attention at every step of the way. <laughs> I like that. You can't can be too comfortable. Uh, I, I know. I, I don't think I ever will. I don't know. Do people do, are other winemakers comfortable? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> this, this, I don't feel like this is the industry for, for comfort. <laughs> but, uh, there's always a, a humming anxiety in the background that I, I think it's a, a good, you know, you perform best when you have butterflies, right? Whether it's on stage or on the field or in your job, so. <laughs> I, I can assure you I'd still have butterflies. <laughs> well, speaking of things that give you butterflies, you mentioned earlier that, you know, every year changes and you can't really count on things working. Well, let's talk about 2020 a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of changes and, and not being comfortable. So tell me about the, the, the kind of the, 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 all the things in 2020, the, the effect of the pandemic on your work, the effect of harvest of 2020 on your work, and what were the decisions and changes you had to make that year to make things work the best they could? Yeah. Um, luckily, as far as the pandemic went, um, luckily I'm isolated down here by myself, you know, and, and Vincent comes down um, every now and then. So luckily it, it didn't really change my job down here. It was super easy um, with just two of us um, to stay socially distanced, um, to uh, stay masked. Um, Luckily, I'm a small enough production that I don't need a large intern crew to get through harvest. Um, besides 17, we only, we only bring one other person on. Um, and so it was pretty easy for us to, to stay masked, to stay socially distanced with just three of us down here during harvest. Um, you know, obviously it affected upstairs and our visitors and um, our tasting room and gift shop and nursery staff way more. Um, luckily, we have a diverse business. You know, we don't just have the tasting room. We make olive oil, so we have the gift shop with all the salts and olive oil and everything for your dining room table. We have the nursery. And so even when all um, the tasting rooms in Oregon were shut down, um, we had the benefit of still being open. Mm -hmm. um, everybody 
was stuck at home and so everybody was gardening a lot more and so um, our nursery helped add a reprieve for everybody. Um, we have a lovely like little mile trail cut through the property and so and a well spread out property that we could continue to invite um, all the locals out here to when they've had too long at home staring <laughs> at their computer and not leaving for three days that they could come out here and and hang out in the property and kind of um, disconnect from from everything else that was going on sorry no worries Paul I didn't tell everybody we were changing venues. <laughs> um, and so luckily my job didn't change too much. Um, but the property, um, as with everybody, had to change protocols. And um, But uh, we rolled well with it. And um, some things that we did change, you know, we had always thought about appointment only, but never felt like we could do that cold turkey, but um, the pandemic did help us go to that. And I'm not sure we're gonna go back anytime soon because now we can focus on every customer and spend the time with each customer and give them the experience we really want to show for our property because we we do have a really unique property in the valley um i mean <laughs> we have the only olive mill in the pacific northwest still <laughs> so um, but between the nursery and the olive oil and um, the wine that we have a lot to offer and um, a really unique piece of property that we love for people to visit and and show off so so what about the other part of 2020? Oh uh, yeah, the smoke, it was um, devastating. And uh, you know, just, it was a small set in 2020. And so, but the fruit, the clusters were small, the berries were small. It looked perfect. And it had been a, a great slow growing season thus far, so. I think the concentration was going to be off the charts. Um, it was shaping up to be what I thought was one of the best vintages I had been a part of up here. Um, and then September 10th. Uh, it, we were all learning. I mean, there are a few winemakers in Oregon um, that had worked in Australia or worked in California during their fires. Um, and other than that, no one up here had really ever worked with smoke damaged fruit. And uh, so to, it was another huge benefit of how collaborative the Oregon wine industry was. Everybody immediately was talking and sharing as much information as they had. Everybody was getting their grapes and their wine um, tested to see what the smoke effect was. Everybody was sharing all of that information. Um, so the entire industry was collaborating from start to finish and um, sharing everything that they knew, 
and you know what the different methods were to possibly combat it, um, to salvage what you could. Um, and so we made everything that we could. Um, we, you know, all of our whites worked out really well. We pressed really lightly um, to separate the free run, had a lot more hard press, um, but just to get as little skin contact as possible. Um, and all the whites turned out phenomenally. Um, we luckily had a block or two that we picked early enough. Um, and that's just one benefit of being one of the warmer sub-AVAs of the valley in that we had two blocks that were ripe before this, the heaviest smoke rolled in. Um, and so I did end up making some Pinot that was salvaged and no smoke impact. Um, there was a whole bunch of Pinot that we had to, we ended up selling bulk and, and letting go. Um, but we made our first white Pinot um, to, to salvage a little more of our Pinot grapes. Um, and so it was a great, um, it, it just showcased the of winemaking as you have to roll with the punches. You never know what you're going to get till it rolls into the winery, until you pick it. And that what you had planned, you may have to scrap everything and start over again. Um, yeah, so it was uh, not, <laughs> not ideal, um, but we got through it. We made a lot less wine than we typically do. Um, but I think the whole industry learned um, and hopefully we'll never have to deal with smoke again. Um, but if we do, I think we're a little better prepared to, uh, to deal with it when it does show up. <laughs> but I mean, the entire industry is still learning about smoke impact and how it affects the grapes and the finished wine. And so it's uh, something that definitely more industry, more research is going into and, and more, there's obviously more interest in it since it continues to pop up in certain mm -hmm. regions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the only way to learn is to, is to do it essentially. So that was, yeah. Disheartening to say the least. The, oh, the crop looks so good that year. <laughs> yeah, heard, heard that. Heard the, heart, the heartbreak from that. <laughs> an, extra, an extra level of sadness on top of it. Uh, so you talked earlier about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon, and obviously 2020 was an example of some of what you talked about, the kind of welcome and collaborative and working together. Um, what are the changes you've seen in, in the industry since you've been a part of it, and what does the industry look like now compared to when you entered it? Um, from 10 years ago, I, I came right after 11, 12, which were like, or 10 and 11, which were really cool, really wet vintages. So um, I feel like I'm 
a little spoiled in that all my Oregon vintages have been pretty warm and dry. 19 had a little bit of, was a little cooler, a little rain during um, the picking, um, but nothing like the historical uh, vintages of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, definitely warming up from what the industry knew of in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, unfortunately, we seem to have a new once in a century storm every six months. <laughs> Between the smoke, we had the heat dome the following year, you know, we had our first frost on this property um, in 49 years of farming. Um, I think there was a, a frost that covered the valley at some point, but I guess most of our vines um, were not affected in that year. Um, so climate, something is happening. Climate change is real. Thing, things are changing. It does seem to keep trending a little warmer. Um, we have the few interspersed cooler vintages. Um, this year is off to a slow start. Um, I mean, the growing degree days are <laughs> way below average where we would be at mid-July. Um, so I think we will deal with a more classic Oregon vintage this year, just in that with the frost, the vines were put four weeks behind, so we just finished bloom at the beginning of this month on this property, and who knows about like Eola Amity, um, they're maybe just getting in past 50% bloom now-ish, possibly. So it's definitely gonna put us into October, which has, that's a classic Oregon month. Um, Ken Durant always says that grapes are an October harvest, but uh, that has not been the case since I've moved up here. Um, we are definitely finished in, in September, and last year I think I, my last pick was even September 17th. Um, so finished picking by mid-September. Um, so yeah, so this year, um, you know, getting into October, definitely be cooler by then. Who knows what rainfall will look like in October. It could hold off. It might be really wet by that point when we start picking. So this may be a more classic Oregon vintage, uh, which would be my first really for a fully October harvest. Um, yeah, I think it's the winemakers and the industry were continuously talking and continuously adjusting. And I think that that will be it going forward is, you know, how much do you leaf pull if we keep getting harder? How much do you shoot then? And how much crop do you leave out there? Do you, if it keeps getting warmer and warmer, we may not drop as much crop. We may leave more laterals and more um, more leaves to help shade the fruit zone. Um, but yeah, we never know. It, it changes each year and um, 
Uh, but I think we are all learning what we can do as it warms up by, you know, possibly leave a little more fruit each year and not not pull quite as many leaves and leave a little more canopy um, for photosynthesis to, to help a larger crop. Um, yeah, we keep learning each vintage how to, because like I said, no two vintages are alike. And that's always been true. Um, but even more so now, it seems to be a, a brand new, wild something, not just, you know, we're not changing the nuances by just a little bit. There are large swings from year to year of what we have to deal with. <laughs> so with that said, what uh, comes next for Oregon wine? What is the industry going to look like going forward? What are you looking ahead to? <sighs> yeah. Um, interesting you know the vast majority of, of vineyards around here are uh, dry farmed so I think that that's possibly something we may have to look at um, in the future uh, luckily we still have good amounts of rainfall in the winter and spring um, that the water table still high enough that we uh, can continue to dry farm, but if the rest of the country is any in, in indication, if we start dealing with more droughts um, in the valley, in this area of Oregon, I uh, know, you know, Eastern Oregon and Southern Oregon are already dealing with more drought instances. Um, irrigation maybe something that we look to leave in the vineyards after a new planting you know usually like we've done a few new plantings over the year and we put in the irrigation for the first three years just to get the vines established and then pull the irrigation but yeah i think irrigation something you know i think crop load is definitely something that um might be able to carry more fruit um, just to slow the ripening if it's hot and dry every single summer that um, so that the sugars don't spike and the acid falls off before we get to that phenological ripeness maybe historically um, the tons per acre that vineyards have carried that can slowly start edging up to offset some of that heat um, different cultivars, you know, maybe we, I mean, I think already we can start looking at Cab Francs and Syrahs and some people are Tempranillo, some people are, those are already going into the ground, um, but maybe as it keeps getting hotter, we can, those will become more prevalent and you take, then take the next step and see what other grapes you can kind of push the, um, push the envelope with that you can ripen um, in the area so but it's it's something we are very heavily planted to Pinot Noir um, and so we first no one's going to want to pull out those vines right now or for the next 20 years and so what can we do 
to continue making Pinot relevant in the area. And I think some of those things, the irrigation, the crop load, um, that will help extend the life of Pinot. Um, but if, if this trend continues for the next two, three, four decades, we definitely have to start looking now at other varieties and, and what mm -hmm. can we ripen now. And then um, as, it, as we continue to get more growing degree days each growing season, um, what other grapes can we think of um, that will be prevalent? Because um, you, they all say, right, you plant the vineyard for your grandchildren, right? And so when you plant something, it's not for the next 30 years, it's for the next 70 to 80 years, hopefully. I mean, we're coming up on our 50th anniversary of those first grapes going in, and um, they're producing some of the best fine grapes or best wine that they've ever made now and um, hopefully only continue to get better over the next two to three decades. Um, so it's, you have to have the really long view well past your lifespan of what goes in the ground when you think about wines. Um, so yeah, different varieties is is definitely I think definitely uh, growers are starting to trial other things and see what can work and that's only going to become more and more important over time. So what about is look ahead for yourself uh, any anything on the horizon for you or for the work here at Durant? Um, I I hope I've found a long-term home. You know, this is like perfect size. We have the, the grapes that we can still scale our production up. I mean, we still sell 40 or 50% of our property. Um, I love working for the Durants. They, one of the most humble and grounded family I've come across in the industry and it's just been an absolute pleasure and um, ha having the ability to really dig into a single site and learn and see it grow and grow with it over you know hopefully the next two decades is kind of what I hope works. Um, I, ho I hope the Durants feel the same. <laughs> um, so my long-term plan would be to stay here and, and, and continue to help craft and build the Durant brand um, and hopefully become another feather in the hat of the Dundee Hills and the Willamette Valley. Um, they're a lot of feathers in the hat of the Willamette Valley. Um, and so I'm just striving to um, play up to that and, and hopefully um, grow and exceed some of those expectations um, and, and keep being somebody that uh, anybody in the valley can be like, oh, you should go check out Durant. All the wines they do and their olive oil are phenomenal and it's a great place to visit. Um, so that's my long-term plan on the property is to, to be here for the long term and and as I c 
continue to learn and grow um, as a winemaker and person. Um, also help grow our brand um, to hopefully only keep our rec recognition moving in the right direction. <laughs> Are there any projects, experiments, things like that you're looking ahead to, something you haven't tried yet or would like to do down the road? Um, I keep trying to, to pique Paul's interest in new, new grapes, you know, um, a Cab Franc I think would be really fun on the property. Um, the, you know, I talked Paul into letting me make bubbly. Um, I love bubbly and so uh, I thought it would fit perfect with our portfolio and the property. And so that's one that, you know, we're just now, I'm trying to do three years on my um, brutes and five years on my Blanc de Blancs. And so we're just now getting into, we disgorged the first brute last year and the second brute will be this year. And so that's uh, a program I'm st still learning about. Mm -hmm. um, so still want to grow that and fine tune that program. Um, you know, like I said, to, to learn and focus and grow um, the, the Pinos obviously is, is the focus of the property and uh, the Dundee Hills and the Willamette Valley. And so um, I still, I'm making some solid wines, but I, I think I have some growth to continue the uh, trend of moving those upwards mm -hmm. and so um, fine-tuning our wines and, and taking the next steps to get them into that upper echelon of the valley is is definitely what I'm um, working on and, and learning about still so that's uh, my big project is to um, grow the quality of all all those wines mm -hmm. um, our Sauv Blanc. Uh, hopefully I keep making a good enough Sauv Blanc that it'll pique the interest of other people, not just in the Dundee Hills, but the Willamette Valley in a broader sense. There's very little in the, in the Willamette Valley overall. And I think that that wine um, can do great in the area. And I really love um, what it's doing on the property. Um, and it's just about getting enough of that wine in front of people to pique their interest in that grape um, and to see what it can do in, in our AVA. So I'd love to see um, more of that go in into the ground. But I guess it's on me to make a good enough <laughs> <laughs> wine that uh, other people think it can do really well in the area. Um, those are the main projects on my front burners. You mentioned earlier that you talked about kind of one of, the, one of your favorite things of being a winemaker was kind of the thought that you, all this effort you're putting in, the blood, sweat, and tears you're putting in are, are going out and 
and uh, you know improving someone else's day and then somebody maybe you may or know or not know is, is enjoying that so I'm curious uh, now that you you're a winemaker you're, you're here you're, you're tell me about that the as you kind of look back on the career so far on mm -hmm. on the how, how do you, how do you kind of feel about where you are right now and and um, and the progress you've made um so far so good like I said I still love coming to work every day um, I've <laughs> learned an immense amount from when I first got into the industry even when I first started tasting wine in 98 or whatever it's like really the first time I started drinking wine and, and focusing on what that was going to, what wine actually was um, yeah, I've learned an immense amount. I, like I said, I still feel like I'm learning every single day. I still feel like I'm nowhere close to learning everything I need to be the best I can be in my industry. Um, but uh, over the years and, you know, walking into numerous wine shops and um, and grocery stores and anywhere else I see a lot of different bottles that I had a hand in um, and it still blows my mind every time <laughs> um, and gets me really excited to keep doing what I'm doing um, so I have a long way to go but it, this is a has been a super fulfilling career path for me um, you know so many people never find something that they're passionate about and I can't believe that at 23 I made the choice to follow this um, to consider this being a career I would find fulfilling and it has been all of that and more um, and so yeah have a long way to go but I love every step of the way even the the sleepless nights <laughs> before bottling and through harvest and sit bolt upright and I'm like did I leave that pump on what um it's it's worth all of the butterflies and all of the anxiety um it's it's been a blast so I can, fantastic I can't imagine it being any different for the next 25 years <laughs> So. so all the questions that I have for you, anything I didn't ask that I know you made it, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Um, I hope I covered it all. I hope I didn't uh, talk over the exact same points numerous <laughs> times. No, fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's, this, is, this was a blast. Thank you Good. very much. Um, I'm still surprised that you reach out to me for this. <laughs> Like I said, I guess I, yeah, I always forget time flies. It's, it's been 10 years up here in the Oregon wine industry. Um, I love it, every minute of it, and I foresee myself continuing to love it for the next two decades, and I don't see myself leaving anytime soon. We, Oregon suits our 
personality as well. And um, yeah, I'm loving it up here. I, yeah, I feel like the, one of the lucky, lucky ones. <laughs> well, fantastic. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, you're welcome. And, and we really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your story with us today, sharing your space with us. And yeah, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.